I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. Foundations traditionally have grant staff and, and endowment investment staff that typically operate entirely independent of one another. So what happens when foundations move beyond this kind of two-pocket approach or mindset to a one-pocket approach? On today's show, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Stephanie Gripney, founder and CEO of the Impact Finance Center, to help us answer some of these questions and, and further explain the benefits of, of what she refers to as full-spectrum capital. If you're not familiar with Stephanie, it's important to note that she is the creative force behind the National Impact Investment Marketplace with a goal to catalyze $1 trillion in investment capital into social ventures by replicating and scaling the infrastructure that she helped pilot in Colorado. We kicked off today's episode by learning a little bit more about her backstory and what brought her to this work. I have actually been doing a lot of reflecting about how I came to be and where I found myself in this space right now. And there is no question, my family goes back four generations, Colorado, but my family ran away. Um, my parents ran away from their parents and I was born up in Port Angeles, Washington, which is kind of come full circle. I'm working on a sustainable forestry project with the Forest Service right now. And they decided that a 24 hour drive was too far hmm. from, to be away from their family, but they didn't want to get too close. So halfway between Port Angeles and Colorado is uh, Idaho. And so I grew up in, a, in Idaho huh. and my parents, while they were married, they divorced when I was eight, um, we moved to Boise. And my dad was a uh, business finance accounting, big hearted workout guy. Um, he would do workouts of companies. And as I've had the joy of being a MBA professor, I really asked myself, is the skill set of being an entrepreneur, of working at a business, is that something that you're born with? Or is it something you're trained to do? Is this a come, does it come from your family? Because I didn't spend a tremendous amount of time with my dad mm. after my parents' divorce. And my mom was brave and she moved us um, up to central Idaho, outside of Sun Valley, Idaho, Haley, Idaho. She was a dietitian, worked for the school district. And I think my commitment to service came from my mom. And my dad was a very big hearted social um, uh, social minded person. He would secretly, you know, if somebody lost their job, he would, he would anonymously get Christmas presents for the whole family or something like that. Wow. And, um, but my dad also, when I was 12 or 13, he, he had been doing workouts of companies and he came across a precast concrete company and, and, um, helped decided he and his partner, Jim took it out of bankruptcy and, and, and became a, the preeminent precast concrete company in Idaho. So I grew up around my shop, my dad's shop when I was visiting him and a par three golf course. And he, um, he, he offered me my first stepping stone business, my first business when I was 12, a what was side that? hustle, a side hustle, stepping stone business. So oh, okay. we'd make large precast. Concrete, oh, okay. Awesome. Like literally um, stepping products. stones. Yeah. Stepping stones. And my mom wasn't, um, didn't think a 12 year old should be running their own business. And, and, but I really wanted to do it. And then he had me invest in Micron when I was 13 and then I bought the Motley Fool book um, and started doing drip investing, direct stock purchasing 15, 16, 17. I bought Enron because it was renewable energy um, stock. And living up in the central mountains of Idaho, everybody's connected to natural resources. And 
my, I loved people on both sides of the issue. Wolves were being reintroduced. We had an endangered salmon, spring, summer Chinook salmon. And my community members would literally threaten the lives of those protecting the resources versus those that were gonna benefit from the river being shut down like the river guides. And literally the river guides would threaten the lives of the fisheries biologists. And I worked for both of them, mm. loved both of them. Um, it was always about wildlife for me. And it took me a long time to realize that what it's not about the wildlife. It was just this resource allocation issue. Mm. There wasn't enough and it was either the wildlife or the community. And I just knew way back when that there was enough. We just had a resource allocation problem. The pipes weren't flowing in the right way. And so that kind of led me on my journey. I announced when I was uh, 16 years old, 17, that I was going to become a carpenter. And my dad said, seriously, <laughs> how about architect? Your class secretary, salutatorian, you know, captain of three sports. And I said, how about wildlife biologist? And he said, <laughs> And he said, Stephanie, he said, you have a mind for business, go make money and have influence. Mm. And I said, dad, I don't have the constitution to, to, to do what you did. I have to be aligned with my values. Mm. And so I had a whole early career in natural resources. I, um, Devin Thorpe, when he was a contributing writer for Forbes, uh, he had a fun headline that said, you know, am I, am I this next wildlife uh, conservation PhD, the next Steve Jobs of impact investing? And that, that conversation would come full circle back with my dad. My dad uh, was a functional alcoholic and would end up when his business was sold. And then my sister and I had gone to college, ended up uh, becoming homeless mm. in my early 20s and came back to live with me and my partner at the time as grad students. And the last five years of his life, I said, we were living in Lander, Wyoming, and I was working on my PhD and working for the Forest Service in seven states. And my mom was actually sick with pancreatic cancer in Idaho. Goodness. And, uh, and my dad, I said he had to get a job or volunteer and he lived in, in our, the actual house in our home. And he got a mortgage broker license and a real estate license. And so we bought one house and then a second house and it became more fun instead of giving him an allowance um, to buy another house to cobble together five to $6,000 and buy a $120,000 house. So that's when I learned about real estate. And uh, he came home one day and he said, hey, there's all these families. They had great credit. They just didn't, they didn't have the proper health insurance. And so they ended up in a medical bankruptcy. Wow. And so they're one, two, three, five years away from buying a house or a car. What if, what if you buy the house and lease option it to them? And so we kind of had this family meeting of how much is enough financial return for us? And how much are we willing to share? Yeah. And we agreed on 10%. We said 10% of their rent, they can have as partial equity. And if the house appreciates above 10%, uh, they get to keep the upside. And uh, most of the houses appreciated 15 to 25%. And so, you know, it started off a job for my dad, then a joy of philanthropy, then amazing tenant and, um, and the concept that people could, you know, regain dignity, um, get a, their home um, and get partial equity and upside. And that's when that, that larger conversation of my dad and my mom's service ethic and my entrepreneurial self kind of catalyzed. And I haven't looked back 300 transactions ago. 
what helped shape your, your, this kind of, this creativity looking at, you know, um, a friend of mine runs creative mornings, uh, if you're familiar with it and here in Louisville, it's a, it's an international, uh, basically monthly breakfast talk. Um, they have like 180 chapters around, around the world and they get different creatives together. Um, and they, they talk on a common theme and every month at each of the chapters and, and what they do is they find someone from the local community that can speak to that theme and they interpret that theme in any way that they can. But part of the gathering that's really profound that I think is really fascinating is they talk about the fact that all of us were born creative, but at some point along our journey, people tell us we're not because creativity one, it's like the artist or, you know, what you think about is more of the fine arts. But as I listen to you and as, as you and I've had multiple conversations before, you're, you light up <laughs> and the way you think about balance sheets and financial statements or the creativity around finance is just amazing. And I'm just like, where did that come from in your kind of your growing up journey? I, there's a couple pieces, I think later in life, but earlier in life, I want to give credit to a couple of uh, junior high and high school teachers and my science teachers. Um, uh, Patty, Patty Lucene, she did experiential education mm. for my ninth grade science class. And it was really traumatic for me because I'd been going to school in Boise, Idaho, and I'd mastered learning from a book, but add in uncertainty, a backpacking trip, building a nature trail, yeah. doing an avalanche rescue, learning by doing, uh, was profound. It was scary. It was hard. I wasn't good at it. I really, I ironically, was feeling very, I can remember being very stressed out about um, not, I remember and we were 14 and she's asking questions about who's reading the news and CFCs and chlorofluorocarbons. And I didn't read the news. I was at 14 years old doing that. And, and Irene Healy, our physics teacher had a similar approach. I think learning by doing, if you read uh, a red stroke of insight about the, the Harvard researcher that had a stroke, you know, it's, we need to basically our brains are still malleable and we can rewire how we think about things. Mm. And part of that is you have to learn by doing in safe, low cost, um, fun ex opportunities. And so experiential education is, is very much what we do now of how do you change an investor, a donor to become an investor? You give them that backpacking experience. You help them learn how to make their first couple investments for low cost, no cost in a fun social way. So certainly want to give credit to those teachers. My dad also just was very creative in how he thought of things. And I didn't, I didn't spend a ton of time with him in that way. So I don't know if I inherited that or yeah. that was a part of it. Um, one thing I want to give credit to is that there was a district ranger, Alan Pinkerton, and I interviewed him when I was 16. And he said, I can't wait to work for you or take a class from you. Mm or be on your team. And I was 16 years old and he genuinely meant it. And they talk a lot about kids struggling through depression or uh, just one person believing in you can change your, your, how you see yourself and, and your willingness to keep going. Or, and I look at Alan wasn't that for me. Alan was that you are special and you can do anything. And he believed it. And I started believing him in myself mm. And the last piece I'll give credit to, I took a, a CO a Berkman test and it, it manages, it measures your aptitude for lots of things. So it's interesting when you were talking about creatives, 
because I, until I took this Berkman test a few years ago, my number one and tied for second aptitudes, number one is persuasion and tied for second is music and service. And I didn't identify as being musical or creative. I now ballroom dance, I now write songs, and I didn't do it until some silly test told me I oh, actually had that skill. In that skill set, it also said science was a low aptitude for me, <laughs> which I went to school for 12 years as an ecologist, oh, <laughs> as that's medical amazing. ecologist and forest economist. And I also want to give, uh, it's interesting, my mom passed from pancreatic cancer and my PhD advisor was my hero. When I was 19, I was a wildland firefighter. And uh, there was the first time the chief of the forest service was not a forester. It was a wildlife biologist. And he'd come from leading the spotted owl, which was the, the issue uh, that, that really the, the Bush Clinton Perot uh, election came down to was Oregon and Washington and how they managed the spotted owl. And, and Jack, Dr. Jack Ward Thomas was the leading wildlife biologist and Clinton actually kind of broke ranks and made that wildlife biologist the chief of the forest service. Jack was, it was the first time an ologist had been chief. And so it kind of brought in ecosystem management into the agency. And I have to give credit to the uh, ecologist mathematical training because, you know, when I explain what I do now, I just had a large cultural institution come to me that has a $40 million budget and they'll be bankrupt in about six months. And they, they, they said, you know, should we do a social impact bond? It was Friday night, 5.30 PM. And I said, well, you can think of me as an integrated doc. I'm not the specialist doc, I'm the integrated doctor. <laughs> and I got this bag of medicine or tools and this bag of medicine, a social impact bond is, is one of my 70 uh, medicines I have in my, my bag. And I'm not gonna tell you what medicine you need till we do a workup. We need to actually unpack you a little bit and probably spend two half days looking at sources and uses of capital. And, and, and we did some mini versions of that just in an hour on a Friday night. And I went from like a big gulp of your, your expenditure rate per day is $160,000. You're going to be short 18 million by the end of the year to, Hey, here's six pathways. We can solve this problem. Yeah. And then that led to the conversation of, okay, if you're having this problem, every significant cultural institution in this in Colorado is having this problem as mm -hmm. well as in the country. How do we scale this learning and solution solving quickly because we have five to six, five to eight months to solve yeah. this problem. So I think training as a landscape ecologist, mathematical ecologist, and you know we'd study the, the actual, wildlife critter, but I was really more at the population community level and the landscape level. And I think that's kind of the approach I take to the financial systems is, is just like, wait, there's it's flow, it's rivers of capital and yeah. flow and energy. Well, I want to go back stuck. to that aptitude test. Cause I think when you said that your science was low, it's really interesting. Cause I'm it kind of peaked in me. I, I mean, you have your PhD in ecology. I mean, like you've, <laughs> you've gone on and mastered, uh, by all, by all accounts, uh, a field of science. Um, how much of that is be, is due to your, you know, your drive, because I, you know, as I, we're going to get to the impact, impact finance center here in just a second, but I, there's gotta be things in your own professional journey that have been either roadblocks that have been in place because of, um, 
systemic issues or cultural issues or, you know, naysayers that just don't believe things. But what I've, what I've always experienced in our conversations is just, you, you never accept those, (laughs) which is an amazing quality. So I know when you said that science was like low on your aptitude, it's like, oh, that makes total sense because she's just going to push through it <laughs> and <laughs> prove everybody that she can do it. So I'm curious, do you have, are there a couple of, you know, before we get to the IFC, kind of in building your professional uh, profile and your understanding of and taking this, this, this ecology research and, and background and training into kind of what you do now, what are some of the roadblocks that you've experienced that you just basically said, nope, I'm not going to, I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to, you know, push that, push that down. There's a, a lot of uh, interesting flashes of my life that came to me <laughs> as you were asking me that question. Uh, one, I want to um, give credit to Sonia Newenhouse. Um, I've been a fo- part of four leadership fellowships mm. in my life. And one is more like libertarian. One is environmental social justice. One is the Boone and Crockett Club. One was a Ford Foundation Community Forestry Research Fellowship. And those four fellowships have by far been my greatest source of learning, in part because you have these peer networks of learning across difference. And the Ford Foundation Community Forestry Research Fellowship taught me about participatory action research. And you can get a PhD now without taking a philosophy of science class, which is really important to to teach you how people learn and know and what knowledge is and who has the right to create knowledge. and I was a budding technocrat without knowing what a technocrat was. And, and that's very dangerous to have technocrats being grown without them realizing that they're a technocrat. And what is the role of science versus the, what is the role of a, a, a conversation? And does a rancher or forester have the right to produce knowledge if they don't have PhDs and letters mm-hmm. behind their name? So I'm really grateful for that that Ford Foundation Fellowship in Environmental Leadership Program Fellowship, I got to know Sonia Newenhouse, who's the top green building expert in Wisconsin. And 2003, I lose my mom to pancreatic cancer. 2005, I turn in my uh, my PhD, my doctorate, my dissertation, and I come down to uh, Colorado to celebrate Denver. And my dad passes mm. within those two years. And uh, the... Uh, Sonia and a bunch of my ELP fellows came out probably five or six days later for a a ranch project I had as part of that fellowship. And then two months later, around early January, late um, December, she calls and she's originally from Denmark. So it's like, hey, Sonia, or it's, it's Stephanie. I'm like, hey, Sonia, how's it going? And she's like, I've made two decisions. You need to change your career. So I just graduated with my PhD. I have a job at the Forest Service on a really cool enterprise team. I'm exhausted. And a dear peer mentor of mine calls and she says, I need to switch my career into real estate. And I I was like, like a a real estate agent? What are you thinking here, Sonia? And then the second thing she says, and I've made another decision. You need to quit your job. You have to have some pain. You won't have the courage to, to figure out your path unless you have some pain associated with it. Wow. And I said, well, I'm a daughter of a single mom. I just don't go quit my job. Um, but I really took what she said to heart. And so I quit my job part-time with a goal of ending it. And I started to basically do like a researcher, informational interviews about the where uh, forestry and real estate overlapped. And so, you know, my first call was Peter Stein at Lime Timber and, and started 
figuring out that pathway. And, and by the end of that six month journey, had a decision to uh, join the Nature Conservancy as a director of science or a real estate shop kind of at the manager level. And I chose to, um, I knew I needed a lot more transaction experience um, to, to keep furthering my direction. I knew going back to school was not an option for me at that point. And so I, I joined the Nature Conservancy in Colorado in the, as a land conservation program manager and was, um, was given a $18.1 million ranch that was going up for auction in 45 days as my first project. And if I knew now, but I didn't know then, <laughs> um, it takes seven years to get projects like that approved at the Nature Conservancy and for they finally for them to finally get approved. And, and so we had a couple late nights, people generally, the Nature Conservancy are not working all nighters on anything. And, and, but it just confirmed, I, some people don't like when I say I'm a deal junkie, but I love transactions. <laughs> I love them. They're like an analytical puzzle piece with a deadline. Yeah, for sure. And I love, uh, I love, love, love doing that. So that's I great. think, uh, I think that's a big piece of, of what's motivated me. And then losing my parents in my twenties and they were 56 and 58. They, there's that saying, they say life is short which is trite until you realize life is so short. Yeah. And, and my parents, when I look at them, they did, they were, they did the best they could. They had a, but, and I feel like they had a lot of unleft living. And I remember thinking, I don't want to get to 50. I want to get to 56 and, and think, wow, I left it all on the table. Yeah. And every other day is bonus after that. And so I realized I was living afraid and scared and afraid of what people would think of me and that I'd be a disruptor or lots of other unsavory words that would come my way. <laughs> and it, I realized a- that, yeah, it just, it melted it like yeah. from a risk from being afraid to risk loving. And I'm still afraid. I just force myself to jump off that cliff every day. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think when you're younger, you have this invincibility, uh, because, you know, life, oh, you know, that's an old, that, that person's old. Even in their 50s, sometimes that feels like they're older. But when you're, you know, you know as an adult, uh, I've, you know, I've lost, I'm sure you've lost friends as well to cancer or other things in their 30s with young families. Or my wife lost her mom last year. She was in her 70s, but she had many years of life left, you know. And so it's like all of a sudden you're faced with this, this mortality and you're just like, okay, what am I going to do? And then I read, I read that, I don't know if you ever read Howard Buffett's book, 40 Chances. Um, you know, he has a foundation that focuses on ending world hunger. And so he kind of took this principle from a seed, seed salesman that he says the farm, a farmer typically has 40 chances to get a harvest right. Because if you think about when they take over the farm and then when they pass the farm on, they have 40 harvests. And he looked at it like, okay, so what are you doing with your 40 chances? Every year, you know, you're, you're, you're out there to kind of build this great harvest provide for your family, provide for your community. And so he profiled people around the country and you look at, okay, if I have 40 chances, how many chances do I have left? You know, I'm almost 40 and <laughs> looking back at, okay, how many of those chances have I used wisely? Have I taken risks to deploy my skills, if you will? Um, so that's, it's really fascinating. I want to um, shift into your work at Impact Finance Center and um, 
the full spectrum capital partners stuff. Cause I think what you're doing there is pretty, is pretty fascinating. You know, access ventures, we talk about like the one pocket mindset, I think full, full spectrum capital kind of synonymous in, in ways. But, um, I, I found this quote from Peter Lupoff from the net impact uh, about you. And it completely resonated with me. It's says Stephanie is a creative whirlwind not only capable of identifying unique solutions to address the world's most pressing problems and those that ease systemic or organization impediments and dysfunction, but she has a history of successful execution as well. And I love that first part, creative whirlwind, because I, I, th I think every time you and I chat, I leave motivated, inspired, and like feeling like I just got out of, you know, the rapids in my kayak, which is great. I think that's a, that's a great gift and quality. And I think you've taken that a lot into the impact finance center. So talk to me about how your life in ecology work, nature conservancy, real estate, and all, kind of taking you to where you are um, and what you're, what you're trying to do with impact finance center and full spectrum capital. Thanks. I'd, I'd love to even add on a, a little piece at the end of your last question for this piece of it, because I, when I realize um, about these decisions. Um, when my parents passed, you know, you, or when they were passing, I just had to, I wanted to take care of them. So mm. you had to do that. Uh, when I graduated from my undergrad in wildlife, I was thinking about going to the Peace Corps or doing something, what, you know, fun that, but very quickly, my dad had said he would pay off of my student loans and he was now homeless. And so I was forced to defer my student loans. So it's interesting because I don't think I ever would have uh, even gone for my PhD, had I not been kind of forced into grad school or the Peace Corps with a, with a bunch of student loans as a wildlife. I'd given oh. up my scholarship at a liberal arts school. And then an opportunity while I was doing my master's degree came up to study with my hero when he was 67. So it wasn't like I could wait five years. Yeah, for sure. Like I, it, was, it was now or then. And so when, uh, yeah, I, I, all of those risks kind of just all of those hardships opened up opportunities for sure. So I lost my mom, my dad, and my uh, tenure relationship within about four years. And I joined a $100 million private equity fund. And that was a joint venture um, eco products fund. And we were doing environmental markets in biodiversity, wetlands, water, and carbon. So I got to work on some of the first um, credit markets back in DC. And that was right before the last great recession, 2007. And I was, I was running away from my life. Let's make no bones about it. <laughs> I was, I was, uh, I was going to do it. And it was the first time I was, I think I had the sense that the people in the private sector were smarter mm. and I didn't know if I was smart enough and what really is this stuff in private equity and how does this work? And, and it was a really interesting experience. And and I was the operations manager for that. And I was also the operations, uh, uh, really COO for our internal forest service consulting firm, which is hilarious because I would never hire me to be an ops anything. But I still, I think <laughs> as a business development CEO, like I'm a, I'm, I'm a great person to partner with the ops person because I do see value in that in having those systems in place. But it was at, I remember writing down on a piece of paper when I was, I was intellectually bored when I was the operations manager in Washington, DC. And so I started teaching environmental markets class online at Virginia Tech at 2008. And I, I believe in getting clarity on your vision. And, and when you get clarity, you can work towards it in such a more profound way. And I 
realized my dream job was um, 10% teaching, 10% applied research, and 80% transactions for good. And so I wrote down that job description and I get a phone call from University of Colorado and they said, why don't you apply for the job? And I said, I, um, no offense, my dad told me to go into the private sector and I'm finally having the courage to do that. And they, they said, well, tell me what you want to do. And I said, well, 80% of my time, I want to do transactions for good, 10% re research and teaching. So I'll volunteer, you know, teach a class and or something like that. And they said, Stephanie, I don't know if you know this or not, but a lot of universities have a, a huge real estate portfolio through acquisitions from every from their uh, president's headquarters to affordable housing uh, to bequests. And some universities actually take that real estate and, and pull it out into a separate foundation. And, and so we'd like to hire you through the University of Colorado Real Estate Foundation. Huh. We have $90 million in assets. We'll give you a carve off to do transactions. We'll make you an assistant professor in finance, a joint, and and through the center, the real estate center, we'll make you director of the initiative for sustainable real estate development. So teach one MBA class, done. Do a little research and do transactions for good. I was like, I was huh. like, thank you, no, thank you. <laughs> Academics is backwards. And I went home and I was like, wait a minute, they just offered me what's on this piece of paper. Wow. And so I joined, um, th there was a shift in leadership. The person who brought me in left right away. And um, so we never fully got that program going in the way it could have gotten. However, it was there I discovered so many things uh, that the financial return of a grant is negative 100%. That uh, learning by doing is really important. You know, you've got to baby step people along the way. That the lack of our royal we attention to train the money in in non-conflicted low-cost ways like we assume the money knows what it's doing because it has the money but they need training just as a social venture needs training all of those things came to pass there and i remember 2010 to 12 i was there three years and i was thinking oh my gosh every entrepreneurship center needs an innovative finance center how many entrepreneurship centers are there thousands. And then I thought, oh, every community foundation needs an innovative finance center. Every association of foundations needs it. Every chamber of commerce. And I was like, how are we going to do this? There's only 15 of us. And so that was the concept of we've got to create a center in a box. So um, now I'm fearless because I have had all this loss. And and uh, so I kind of took some of my retirement dollars and started a nonprofit impact finance center with the goal to be a multi-university academic center, which was piloted at University of Denver and Virginia Tech, and now we're at the new school. So that's where that concept came up of, we've got to create this cur curriculum, this education and technical assistance in a non-conflicted way, and then figure out long-term a B2B partnership model. That's great. I'm curious uh, if you could explain some of the, so there's two questions. One is impact investing uh, or impact finance center. I think sometimes those, those, those terms get muddied uh, because they take on a different meaning for different people. Help us understand what you mean by, by impact um, and where you see that going. Cause like some people we've talked with, they would talk about like, okay, all investments have impact and that eventually and inevitably the goal would be that we would drop this modifier and, 
we just are thinking more thoughtfully and intentionally about how we invest. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that. If there's, if there's staying power for this, or if the really ultimately the goal is to continue to move people in the direction of more alignment. Uh, and then second to that, like this, this notion of full spectrum capital, like how do you do that? How do you work with these organizations to help them move from what they have historically done, which is this bifurcated approach to money management and whether that's education or impact, what, what, what have you found to be the most um, impactful, for lack of a better word, ways to help them move in that direction? Great questions. The first question I'm going to base a real life case study, but I'm going to keep the names anonymous to protect the innocent. I, (laughs) but it's a full spectrum capital, uh, project. And so in October of this year, um, we have Full Spectrum Capital Partners as a partnership with that is led by Taj James out of the Movement Strategy Center and uh, us at Impact Finance Center and an organization called Dev Labs, Ruben Hernandez, um, and their venture, venture capital tech firm. And that effort is, is unlocking Full Spectrum Capital and really supporting what we call community stewards, people that are just rock stars. And, and, and when I think of a community steward, they have their own social venture, but they're also holding that space for everybody else, somebody like you, Bryce. And, and so we have uh, identified uh, probably 60 so- community stewards in, in the Americas that wow. need support. And one of those community stewards is this amazing woman, Anasa Troutman out of Memphis. And her story is unbelievable and I'm not going to do it justice right now but she grew up outside of New Jersey amazing activist family went to Spelman mm. and with a, with the concept of I'm going to find my people and and she was there and going to classes and and some of her classmates were like well we can't go on the wrong side of the tracks we're going to get mugged by the people in the hoodies and so talk about understanding issues of race and class in a way that most of us could not experience or understand and so she ended up saying to no surprise, finding her people in the creatives. Mm. And so she started a record label, I believe at 22, India Aria was her first breakthrough artist. She was asked to come back to historic Claiborne Temple, which is, is, is ground zero of the sanitation worker strike. And I am a man speech where um, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot four blocks away on that project. And she was asked to come back. Historic Claiborne Temple is, is, was kind of ground zero where uh, three different protests were led and and she was asked to write a musical for the 50-year anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, assassination and she ended up also kind of being asked to to stay in Memphis and to acquire this historic Claiborne Temple for uh, uh, a little over a million dollars and come up with a $50 million plan to continue the work of Reverend Lawson and Reverend King on on worker ownership and community ownership as a way to solve race and class issues. And so how could she acquire this temple, put it into people of color ownership and and literally restore the temple, repair it and activate it with creatives and interfaith and continue on the stream. And so we were brought in in October to support her um, coming up with to the the last mile of acquisition, we had to come up with 1.3 million dollars in two months, and through um, and literally a, a a week before I'm going out to Memphis for the first time, I get a call from a family foundation, and they said, 
is there somebody like you in Memphis that can teach our family how to do what you do? And I said, you know what? I'm going to be in Memphis on Tuesday. And they said, our family foundation meetings on Tuesday. Can you come out <laughs> early? And I said, absolutely. And, you know, like most families, they're complex and, and part of them are progressive and part of them are conservative. And so how do you thread the needle? How do you teach impact investing to a, a really diverse crowd like that? And um, who I'm talking to, I probably have 50 different ways to teach it based on who you are. So that's the bigger the crowd, the more ineffective I am. Yeah. But, but in this particular audience, I said, you know, I'm not that different than you. Um, you know, I have a holding nonprofit with multiple social enterprises. You have a holding company in your family. And, um, and um, their grandfather who had started their family company and foundation, essentially there was a billboard that said, do more positive things in Memphis. And he'd gotten a start with a, a financial partner. He was the son of a of a single of a single mom, a widowed mom, I believe. So he didn't have a lot of money. And so I walked them through and I said, you know, people will say impact investing is complicated. I said, is it? And I said, you know, your grandfather and his money partner, that's called relationship investing. And the next slide was the picture of do more positive things in Memphis. I said, do you know what impact investing is? It's doing more positive things in Memphis with your money in relationship to others. Mm. And our biggest donor, my biggest donor came, his grandfather came from Memphis too. And so I put his picture up. I'm like, you know, the grand, the grandfather. And they're like, yes. I said, his grandson is my money partner. Hmm. So instead of, you know, we basically are creating community infrastructure that we can share and cross over. And I'd say, you know, a hundred years ago, Bryce, you'd be the farmer. I'd be at the mercantile. Your crops would be late. And you'd come into the store and say, hey, can I have an extension on my credit? And I would say, yes. Um, and, and most people on Wall Street would say there were problems about that transaction around risk. And I would say 85% of that transaction was perfect and beautiful. 15% was problematic. And the risk issues were geographic risk, sector risk, diversification risk. But instead of us fixing that small piece of the problem of that transaction, we just threw the 85% of what was right and beautiful out. And now most of us can't look somebody in the eyes on the other side of our 401k or our IRA. And what's, we call it Main Street 2.0. We said, what's great about Wall Street is that you're really good at measuring and pricing risk. So we can swing the pendulum back to Main Street, look each other in the eye, and now we can price and measure risk. And we can actually give you a better financial return for investing locally. So I am of the belief that there are positive and negative impacts or what we would call externalities and econ terms on every transaction. And that the goal is to get all their positive negative impacts and the goal is to get all money doing as much positive impact as possible. Yeah. I think, um, what I love is, is the, the emphasis on relationship and that money ultimately is a, is a, is a conduit. It's a tool. I think I saw a quote from you I'm paraphrasing it, but just talking about how we use, typically in our, in our traditional asset management, one or two tools in a 50 tool toolbox. And we expect to one, get the returns that are possible from a financial perspective, but also um, improve our communities, feel better about the, the work that we're doing on a social and environmental perspective. So what I love is that by through story and connection and through relationship, you're helping people see 
like ultimately this is how business was in, intentionally designed for centuries and how it's been structured and how we kind of lost sight of that. Um, there are many things that have good, been good about globalization and kind of the institutionalization and all these different things, but we've almost in some level dehumanized the marketplace uh, and removed the person and made it a, a decision devoid of flesh. You know, like those, when you, when you are headquartered in New York and you've got to cut some, cut some, uh, some from your budget. Uh, and those are, those are people in, in the Detroit office. It's a lot easier when you're, when you're removed from that. And so I think connecting people to story and relationship is a, is a powerful thing. I was curious too, cause like every time you and I talk, I loved what you said and I want to like skip over it. You said, if it's a group of 50, it gets really, really hard. Um, I can imagine that's equally difficult, like on a website or in mass marketing to really kind of get what you're doing, um, in a format that's accessible. How, how have you found that, that medium? Um, uh, because what you do is, is amazing. And if you're, if the mission of moving a trillion dollars, uh, in billion dollar increments uh, or whatever it might be, um, to really help shape and, inf and inform these family offices, how do you, how do you get in front of the eight person crowd? How, how are you working to kind of solve for that problem um, as you move forward? Because, because it's quite complex and you go to the impact finance center website and there's a lot of great resources, but it's rather academic. And so how do you translate the, the academic and everything that you're doing into what really is uh, a one to five or one to 10 type conversation? That's a great question. And we're actually just in the process of rebranding right this second and okay. working with our, our C we have our first CMO. We've never had money for a marketing or PR budget in our life. And so we are in that place of, of going through that process right now, but there's like, there's a two different stories I'd like to share with you related to that. So one for anybody who's listening, who has that expertise, please call us. Help <laughs> us out. We want your help because we're essentially a family of brands. We yeah. have multiple uh, social enterprises, which you can relate to. Uh, one of the most exciting transactions right now, we haven't figured out how to to, to share it in a way that's understandable in an easy way is a case study we're working on with the Reese Foundation. So people have heard about us primarily through word of mouth. So we offer one-on-one -on -one training, small group training and large group training. And so generally it's, I think it's people have learned about us by attending our conferences, our 200 education events. And so luckily now we have a bit of a waiting list of, of different types of individuals and organizations with resources wanting to, to get trained, which is our goal. And so we have this amazing brother and sister with the Reese Foundation. Um, Kyle was at Ford for 25 years, so he understands institutional philanthropy really well. He's now at TechSoup, who is one of our partners. Um, they were lovely. Uh, Ken and Kyle came to our Colorado Impact Days conference and I could see it right there. People don't know TechSoup. They're absolutely amazing. They're the largest civil society organization in the world. With um, they, Last year, they distributed $2 billion of software to 1 million nonprofits. They're the first for-profit or nonprofit doing a 50-state direct public offering. And I said, oh, we should partner. And, and I think they, they were like, what? And they came back a month later and they said, it's taken us nine months to teach one of our corporate foundations how to invest in our 50 state DPO. We get it. We're not the experts nah. <laughs> in investor education. Will you be our investor education partner? 
That's for great. our 160 corporations that donate software to us to teach them how to invest in us yeah. with a direct public offering. And so Kyle also is with TechSoup, but he has a, this other hat as a family foundation. And so um, something interesting that, you know, the Ford quote of that, uh, that if you ask people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses is certainly true, could not be more true in this situation. So Impact Finance Center in the last three years has activated about 85 investors mm. and most of them are on their third to 20th activity. And I, I don't say investments because an activity might be evaluating your investment advisor, which is probably the most important activity you could take, but it's not an investment. And so the hardest part is act, finding them and activating them. And I think if you would have given me a multiple choice test and said, here's a thousand potential investors you will activate within three to four years in Colorado, I would have gotten an F minus. I probably would have gotten 12 right out of that 85. So one, my ability to predict who's going to be an early adopter is not, I have no ability to do that. It is quite fascinating. It's somebody who, it's an individual or a group that thinks independently. Yeah, like it's not normally the to, people that you, that everybody says, oh, you should talk to this group. Absolutely. <laughs> if you look at our list of 85, um, probably 75 are no names from yeah. the perspective of you have not heard of them yet. And so I was wrong on who would be. So I realized from an economist, you're trained for stated preferences and revealed preferences. So for our perspective, it's like, if you want to move and you're willing to do that next step, we'll work with you. If you slow down, get in the back of the line. We're going to encourage another individual or family family officer foundation to get ahead of it. You. The other piece from the website design, which is horrific, is we have about 70 tools in the toolbox right now. I'm always wrong where they want to start. So you can take four different categories, overall governance of your money, your endowment, your philanthropy, your direct investing. I'll say, I know where Bryce is going to want to start. He's mm. going to want to start on direct investing um, in uh, CDFIs in Kentucky. And you'll come and say, I actually want to evaluate my investment advisor and do evidence-based decision attribution evaluation after you watch our course. So I feel like we, and I invite we, because the infrastructure we're creating shit is created for all of us. We need to figure out how to communicate that well to invite everybody to the table and give them the buffet in a way that they it's not overwhelming and a hurricane so they can have like a little, uh, you know, uh, hors d'oeuvre taste. And, and then what's most important is, and this is where our system is not set up for a becoming a brand new impact investor, is people are constantly selling what they want to sell versus going, what does your first step want to be? I love that. Because when we studied the PRI capital, uh, I have a data set from a few years ago, there was an R square of 0.73 for foundation asset size and making your first transaction. And what that means in English is if you did one transaction, you would do a second transaction regardless of the outcome. Just because so of the our, experience. <laughs> so, so our issue is you take, uh, we have a large, a billionaire in, in Colorado, and I could take a handful of 100 transactions out of a, a bag in Colorado, and he's going to like 93 of them. But guess what? The first five that went to him were the, were the seven exactly. <laughs> that he wouldn't like. 
And I, I get why my colleagues and friends are like, I have an introduction to the billionaire. I'm gonna go pitch my thing. But we're sitting, we're sitting back one le level away going, hmm, what does that billionaire need to see for that first transaction to activate him? Because yeah. if he's activated, then we can get him to do a second one and a third one and a fourth one. So it's just a different um, game. That's good. Well, you heard it here, folks. Uh, it's our infrastructure. And if you're creative, uh, we need your help. Because I think uh, what Stephanie's hitting on is true because it's, uh, it's a super it's complicated. It's not complicated. It's really relational, uh, but capturing that and translating that to the masses. So if you're interested, I'm sure you can reach out to Stephanie and she'd love to connect and figure out how to, how to plug you into the work. So um, I would love to keep going, but we've been chatting for, for a while. Um, on, an, on another note, at some point, this is off topic, but I'd love to pick your brain. I've got four daughters and one of them is starting her own business. So I'd love to get your best practices for an 11 year old girl who's starting her natural dog treat business. So just giving your 12 year experience, but that's a, a whole nother conversation. I, you laugh. Um, I had several, so we're structured as a three full-time staff, 60 part-time staff, 10 to 15 students at a time, an offshore data team, and then now over 150 senior advisors. So we'd love for one, you to join us as a senior advisor, but one of our senior advisors just pitched us yesterday or this a week or two ago um, has a friend and says, I want to develop a curriculum for youth for impact investing. And so that's actually in the play. That's, that's awesome. already in the, the interest. There's about seven or eight of the advisors interested in doing that. So well, let's work on that. That'd be great. Doing that and, uh, the business piece is, is super valuable. And I think the holy, the holy grail is there is enough. There's enough for the workers. There's enough for the founders. There's enough for the community and there's enough for the, the, uh, investors, and so it's, I mean, it's, it's exciting. It's the most exciting time in my life right now, watching people adapt and respond so quickly. And it's like, oh my gosh, how do we get this playbook out to so many more people faster? If you've enjoyed today's conversation and want to learn more about our overall approach to structuring and deploying capital, then download our white paper on the one pocket mindset at accessventures.org. Thanks again for listening to More Than Profit. And if you've liked what you've heard, then do us a favor by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Thanks for listening.